cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, January 10th, 2012. Got an important topic we're going to be talking about today, Lectio Divina, and how do you know whether or not you're hearing the voice of God? seem to be hot topics. A lot of controversy and talk going on right now. And I'm about to weigh in. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It doesn't matter if the person who is teaching is a noted uh, Bible teacher, somebody who has a long career and storied career of teaching you the truth. Even he or she... Hang on a second here. I got to clear my throat after saying that. (sighs) Even if he or she uh, says something contrary to God's word, it doesn't matter how many millions of books they've written, how much good they've done in the past, if what they're saying doesn't square with Scripture, at least that portion of their teaching must be rejected. That goes for me included. Everybody, every single human being who is a teacher is to have their teaching analyzed and held up to the square rule of God's word. If it doesn't square with it, if there's things that don't align with it, it ain't right. It ain't right. And if it ain't right, you're not hearing what God's revealed. And if that's not what God's revealed, you're to reject it, not listen to it. To hear the voice of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is to hear his voice in Scripture as it's rightly taught. Now, let's talk about what it is that's uh, brought this controversy to light, and uh, we'll talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Last week, uh, John Piper, Louis Giglio, uh, Beth Moore and others were the headline Christian speakers at a conference for college-age students entitled Passion 2012. took place in Georgia, and um, there was something that happened there that, um, well, 
left my head spinning and me scratching my head going, what was that? And uh, and has caused quite a bit of controversy, okay? And the practice uh, is being dis- basically discussed as Lectio Divina Light. Now, just so you know, uh, on the Desiring God website, uh, on the Desiring God website, there's a prayer strategy plan thing that's posted for this year. Uh, and des- the Desiring God website is actually actively promoting the use of what they're describing as Lectio Divina. Now, at the Passion 2012 event, something happened that was very much akin to the Lectio Divina. And it, what, what happened is, is that uh, Francis Chan, Beth Moore, John Piper, uh, Louis Giglio, and uh, some other guy, we're taking turns reading from the book of Ephesians, and while they were reading through the book of Ephesians, that you know each of them would take a turn, and then they'd pause and say, Lord, speak to us. And the expectation was that God was somehow speaking in the silence. And, uh, and on the big television monitors or the, the big screen uh, projectant, projection screens were words like, Lord Jesus, speak with us. And I received an email today from uh, a gentleman by the name of Dalton uh, who, uh, who was there at the event. And Dalton, he writes, Dear Mr. Roseboro, I saw on Facebook that you'd be discussing Lectio Divina on your show today. Seeing as one of the big discussion points would be that of John Piper in Passion 2012, I thought you might like an eyewitness testimony of what happened at Passion. Says Dalton, During the morning session on Wednesday after worship, all five speakers walked out on stage. They began to read large portions of Ephesians, one of my favorite books, which made me very excited. There are many conferences for young people that have all sorts of messages without ever getting to the Bible, and here we are hearing massive portions of it read. Needless to say, my excitement did not last. After reading each chapter, they would stop and say, pause, be quiet, and hear Jesus speak. This annoyed me greatly, so I figured that I might as well actually hear him speak, and so I would reread the passage during our mom- moment of contemplation. After the entire book of Ephesians had been read, the ending crescendo was for uh, Louis Giglio to step forward and say, Wasn't that just amazing? If you heard God speak to you, would you please stand? Once again, I was highly agitated. Did not all of us hear God speak when you read the passage? Anyway, a large number of people stood as a testimony to the fact that God spoke to their hearts, and applause broke out. So, uh, you know, firsthand information from somebody who was there. He was he he, he witnessed this, and so um, I've been watching the controversy. Some of the controversy has spilled over onto my Facebook wall, where there's been a discussion of this topic and uh, the issues being raised. And so what I thought I would do today is dedicate the entire program to this topic. And what I've decided to do is uh, to do a telephone interview. In fact, I recorded it earlier today with the Reverend Jeffrey W. Ware. Jeff Ware, Pastor Ware, is the pastor of Living Word Lutheran Church in the Woodlands, Texas. Yeah, he's just a stone's throw away from Kerry Shook's congregation. And back in 2007, he wrote an article entitled A Lutheran Perspective on Lectio Divina. 
Now, don't let the word Lutheran throw you, okay? In fact, what I would strongly recommend if you're bristling at the idea, oh, I'm not going to let the Lutherans tell me what to think of Lactio Divina, um, you might really want to rethink that position. The reason being is, is that Martin Luther, uh, the guy who kicked off the Protestant Reformation, um, Martin Luther was somebody who was exposed to the Lectio Divina. And after uh, after his evangelical breakthrough where he rediscovered the gospel and began reforming the church, Lectio Divina, being one of the practices he was exposed to as a Roman Catholic monk, didn't make the cut. And there's good reasons why. And so in this interview with uh, Pastor Ware, he and I are going to discuss Lectio Divina in several different portions of the of the conversation. But we've also widened out the uh, the discussion to talk about this idea about hearing the voice of God and hearing God's voice directly. And uh, and so there, you know, and this has to do with the the wider conversation regarding the charismatic movement. And so this, we're going to touch on mysticism, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, and other things as it pertains to hearing the voice of God, and specifically regarding the practice of lectio divina and the lectio divina light thing that uh, took place at the Passion 2012. So the best thing I could recommend that you could do is make yourself comfortable. Grab a notepad. You're going to need it. Now, one of the things I'm going to make available, if you're, uh, okay, um, I'm going to make this paper that uh, Pastor Ware wrote in, in 2007. I'm going to make it available for download um, from the Fighting for the Faith website. And if you are a podcaster and you're listening to the podcast via iTunes, if you look at your iTunes list, um, you'll see this episode, the MP3 that you're listening to, and right below it, not above it, but right below it, on the same day, just a slightly different timestamp, you're going to see a, you know, that you can download and listen uh, and read Pastor Ware's article on Lectio Divina and what's wrong with it. What's its history? What's its origin? Where'd it come from? What's its goal? And what's wrong with it biblically? And so uh, Pastor Ware does a fantastic job of letting those who are pro-Lectio Divina, the guys who develop this stuff, uh, this practice, tell us what it is before he critiques it biblically and then talks about why Martin Luther, the reformer, rejected it as as a practice. So um, all of this is being made available to you as a means of, of offering a biblical, sound, doctrinal counterpoint to um, what's being practiced in, uh, in, in greater American evangelicalism. This, this stuff is, is not biblical. And ultimately, it really erodes your faith and certainty in Christ rather than buttress it. And you'll you'll understand why after this interview. So make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, if the weather permits in your neck of the woods. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition, though, is against drunkenness. You don't want to be enslaved to a good gift that God has given us. So with that, here's my interview with the Reverend Jeffrey Ware. Okay, on the line, I have Pastor Jeffrey Ware of uh, Living Word Lutheran Church in the Woodlands, Texas. And Pastor Ware, back a few years ago, back in 2007, 
presented a paper that he wrote on the Lectio Divina entitled A Lutheran Perspective on Lectio Divina. And this was presented to the uh, Circuit 33 meeting in the Texas district out there in uh, in Texas. Uh, Pastor Ware, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Good to be with you. All right. So we got a tough topic to uh, to to discuss here. And that is a, a, a practice known as Lectio Divina. Uh, but I think in a, in a more broad sense, I, I'd really like to talk to you not only the practice itself, but some of the underlying assumptions regarding it as far as this idea that God wants to speak things into my heart and stuff like that. And so um, I hope you have some time because uh, I'd really like to spend some time working through this topic uh, both historically looking at the Lectio Divina as well as talking about the the broader uh, evangelical culture that uh, where uh, the charismatic movement has been moving away from the uh, speaking in tongues as being the prominent thing and are embracing what appears to my uh, eye, my eye as uh, practices that were developed by Roman Catholic uh, mystics. And uh, monastic mystics at that, but uh, so let's dive into this. You you, you presented this paper back in uh, in November of two thousand and seven, uh, and let's let's kind of crack this open a little bit. Does the Bible teach this practice known as lectio divina? No, it doesn't. Um, <clears throat> this uh, this practice of uh, lectio divina was developed um, by uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, monks uh, in the Middle Ages, and um, and I I conclude in my paper that uh, there really is no scriptural basis for this uh, this teaching and this practice of, uh, of devotional prayer and meditation. Okay, now that 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 that's a big claim. Now I can hear some of my listeners going, but wait a second, wait a second. Uh, yeah, it's true that if we type into our computerized Bibles Lectio Divina that zero search results will come back. But what if it's like the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, where the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but, you know, you can actually correctly, you know, hammer together what the Bible teaches regarding the nature of God, looking at the different passages that discuss his nature. Are you sure that Lectio Divina isn't like the doctrine of the Trinity, something that really is a biblical teaching, but you just have to look at the full spectrum of what the Bible teaches regarding prayer and hearing God's voice? Well, that, well, that's the test, isn't it? Um, you know, certainly, we know that the uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we see the teaching all over the place. So, the question that we have to to address when it comes to Lectio Divina is that same question: um, Is the teaching uh, or this method of supposedly experiencing God uh, found in the Scriptures? And uh, and for that, we got to go to the text and see. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit, but uh, if, in fact, we are encouraged uh, to go beyond the text of Scripture to hear God and to hear God's voice or to experience God in some other way outside of God's Word. And uh, when we go to the text, um, I just don't see uh, the evidence there that that is uh, recommended to us by the biblical authors. Okay, so let, let's walk through the history of this. In in your paper, uh, you you begin to posit the idea that um, lectio divina 
in its earliest forms may have been developed by um, origin. Yeah, I'd say uh, be aware of anything that has its origin in origin. Right. <laughs> yeah, we... Uh, <clears throat> he was like the uh, Rob on... Bell of his day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, origin, uh, as far as I can tell, according to the research, that at least the the thought or the idea or the major premise that is operating there behind uh, the Lectio Divina practice has its beginning uh, in origin, at least in respect to um, coming into the church. And um, it, uh, it is carried on or ad- adopted and adapted for the monastic rule by uh, Benedict. Okay. And uh, later by a fellow who is not so well known as these first two, Grigo II, who uh, systematizes this sort of principle into what he calls the monk's ladder, a, a ladder of four rungs by which we, um, through uh, the right kinds of meditative and prayer practices, uh, ascend the ladder from the uh, the earthly realm uh, to a direct experience or contemplation of God. Okay. I, I I don't think I could emphasize this enough. I I hear that and I just think that is breathtakingly arrogant to think that you can create or concoct a four-step ladder or a four-step system or a four-step method or principle or practice or whatever that promises at the end of it when you've finished all four steps that you have climbed the ladder into heaven and and God is therefore obligated and obliged to give you an experience of his divine majesty and glory. I mean, it, it, am I wrong in saying that that's arrogant? Well, I think you're I think you're exactly right. Um this 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 kind of uh, prayer practice, meditative practice sort of ends up treating God as our divine butler that if we uh do the right things and ask the right way, um, then God is obligated or has to uh, to give us what we want, uh, or at, at least um, what the the particular practice or prayer practice promises. Okay. Now, okay. So, but it sounds so uh, religious in biblical and stuff. I mean, come on. Reading a passage, prayer, meditating, and contemplating—are are you? Re- I mean, come on—is the Bible really against these things? I mean, I mean, this sounds so Christiany. I mean, how could you say that that, that God isn't going to give us a, an experience of His divine glory in nature if we read the Bible, pray, meditate, and contemplate? Come on, I mean, you know, what's wrong with you? You sound like a wet rug or something. Well, you're right in saying that uh, a lot of the language here is, is uh, borrowed from the scriptures, and certainly there are, you know, some some good aspects of this. Uh, of course, being encouraged to read the scriptures is never a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither is it is it wrong uh, for us to to meditate upon them, to think about what's being said, to use our our brains, and to get. Uh, 
to the, uh, the, as you always say, context, context, context of the passage to understand what God is saying to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and prayer, of course, is something that God blesses and and uh, and uh, is a, a wonderful gift uh, to us. But the problem is in the goal. What is the goal? Uh, is the goal of these things uh, to to grow deeper in our understanding of God's Word, to hear His Word, to hear Him speak to us through His Word, or is the goal for us to somehow get beyond what He has revealed to us to something better? Um, That's the problem with Lectio Divina and other prayer practices like this. The goal is to somehow ascend beyond or go beyond what God has given us in His Word. You know, it is kind of... um, kind of an an uh, arrogant thing isn't it um for us to to think that <clears throat> we must we must ascend to god especially if we consider as christians that the way in which we are saved is when god descends mm-hmm. to us right um that, that that is to say that the situation of sin and uh, our unrighteousness and our iniquity before God was so bad that we could not ascend unto God. That uh, a Savior, uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ, true God and true man, had to come to us, um, had to be born in the womb, of the, uh, incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and, and born and live life on this earth. This is how we're saved, when God comes to us, not when we uh, ascend unto God. Yeah, and that's a great point. And really the idea... Of, uh, of ascending unto God is a real form of spiritual pride and arrogance mm-hmm. that assumes that things are not as bad off uh, as the scriptures say with us and with our sin. I also think it shows a, 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 almost a, a limited or stunted view of just how sinful we are. I mean, I don't think in my sinful condition... Uh, dealing with the the sinful flesh that I've inherited from Adam and Eve, that you know that I still have to wrestle with and is in mortal combat with me on a day to day basis, um, and you know in which I have to drown in the waters of my baptism. I don't think it's a safe proposition for me to ascend into heaven. I think that might go badly for me. Right. Well, you think of uh, you know I, the prophet Isaiah when he sees the vision of God in the temple. Falling down on his face and saying, "Woe is me, for I am a, a man of unclean lips. Right. I come from a people of unclean lips." He's afraid. He's scared. <laughs> uh, he knows that he is not worthy of standing in the presence of Almighty God. Right. And for human beings today to uh, to have the the kind of um, thought that this is what God wants us to do to try to ascend unto Him by our own efforts. Mm-hmm by our own works, by our own um, meditative practices, really kind of flies in the face, face of the, uh, the whole trajectory of, of Scripture, which is that uh, we have a God who uh, doesn't wait for us to come to Him, right. but that we have a God who comes to us. Is it fair to say that somebody who believes that they can, you know, ascend the ladder into heaven via these practices in order to get beyond the biblical text, 
that this is in fact a tacit denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, that it's basically saying God's Word isn't enough? Is this a form of despising God's Word? Absolutely. Um, as I said before, we have absolutely no command or encouragement from God's Word to go beyond the text of Scripture. In fact, we have uh, every reason given, uh, uh, both by the uh, the words of the scriptures themselves and by the examples of the, the prophets and the apostles, um, that we uh, are constantly directed back to God's word. Uh, you know, Second Timothy says all scripture is God breathed mm-hmm. and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. We have all that we need in the, the Word of God, and, uh, and nothing else remains, and nothing is lacking. That's, that's uh, how we're directed in Scripture to, to approach these things. Now, one of the things that I think is a popular way of looking at the uh, the work of the Spirit is I, I can I can already hear it. there's people screaming at their uh, at their iPods or their iPhones or you know however they're listening to Fighting for the Faith right now, going Are you saying that God can't talk to us if He wants to talk to us? I mean, come on! I mean, God is God. It sounds like you're limiting Him or putting Him in a box or something like that. Are you putting God in a box? Absolutely not. In fact. I would say what we're doing is we're taking God at his word. Okay. Um, The question is not what can the Holy Spirit do. Obviously, the Holy Spirit can do anything he wants. He's God. Um, But what does the Holy Spirit do? Or uh, an even better question, uh, where does the Holy Spirit bid us look for him? Um. So, so we know the Holy Spirit can do anything. But the question is, as we look at the Scriptures, where does the Holy Spirit direct us? Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit always directs us to the Word, the Word, the Word. Uh, we've been given, no, as I said before, no command um, or promise outside of the Word um, that, uh, that we should, uh, where we should look. And in fact, there's, there are some dangers um, associated with going beyond God's Word. Okay. The uh, of course the danger is being that uh, that the question is if we're if we're going beyond God's word, what are we listening to, and how do we know uh, that it's the Spirit of God? Which is an absolutely fair question. How do you? I mean, if you are looking inside of yourself and believing that God is speaking into your heart, how do you know that isn't the devil? Because according to scriptures, the devil comes to us as masquerading as an angel of light. Right. Well, and, and, you know, of course we have Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yeah. It, so if we're, if we're not uh, in the Word where we know God is speaking, uh, then where are we? Are we uh, directed then to our hearts? Well, uh, our hearts are corrupted, and what comes from the heart uh, may or may not be in line with, uh, with God's Word. And if we're uh, and if we're waiting for voices or feelings from somewhere out there, the question is, where do those voices and feelings come from, and how can we be sure that it is from God? Yeah, that... there's no way of knowing. Right. And uh, and uh, and you may feel like this is from God, but as you said before, 
Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, but I'm a sincere he's not guy. Not going to show up with the horns and the pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'm a sincere guy, and I go to church. I mean, I mean, right. come on, you think you think God's going to allow the devil to tempt me like that and to and to d- deceive me? If you despise God's word enough to walk away from it and seek God in something else. Um, I guess your sincerity is in question then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good and, point. Uh, and, uh, and will God allow you to experience the fruit of uh, your denial of him and walking away from the, uh, those things which he has revealed and given to you? Right. All right, let me, let me, I, I want to change the subject ever so slightly because one of the things you, you brought up was the passage of Scripture that says in Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. Um, right. And um, th- that's a very interesting statement. When we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, I think one of the things that a lot of people think intuitively is that they're able to, with their own eyes and with their own reason and through their own experience, be able to determine where God the Holy Spirit is working. And so, you know, and, you know, they think they can figure this out somehow, you know, using reason and intuition and other things. But when the when you read read that passage in, in, in Timothy, all scripture is God breathed. It sounds to me like if you run that thing to its logical conclusion about what God is revealing about himself and his word is that God, the Holy Spirit, his work is intimately and uh, uh, basically inseparable from the preaching and proclamation of his word. If I want it, so if I stop looking with what I think I know what God the Holy Spirit is going to do and instead listen to what he said, then if I wanted to see where the Holy Spirit is truly working, then wouldn't that be in a church where his word is is basically held to be infallible, inspired? preached with authority and proclaimed and handled and preached rightly so that sinners are confronted with their sin and killed by God's law. Their righteousness has a stake, wooden stake run through it. And then they hear the the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Isn't that what God the Holy Spirit is really saying his work is? And we can tell when he is working because his word is rightly being preached? That's right. <clears throat> Um, it's really popular today for people to, as you said, look for the Holy Spirit in all kinds of places. Um, you know, well, where's the, the successful church where there's all kinds of people attending? Where's the money? Um, uh, where's, uh, where is it that I feel good? Um, where is it that it has music that I like? Uh, people look for all kinds of things. And the fact is, is that none of those are reliable indicators of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the Mormons have large churches, and they're growing fast as well. And yet, how could we say uh, that uh, that Mormonism is a place where the Holy Spirit is? Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's just that's a it's, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, I feel good <clears throat> when I go to a rock concert, um, but uh, you know. The rock concert may or may not, uh, and usually does not, have the uh, the uh, the Holy Spirit's uh, message of law and gospel being proclaimed. 
Um, so all of these other places where we might go as evidence of the Holy Spirit, our feelings, success in the eyes of the world, money, uh, they're unreliable. Um, what we have been directed to by God's Word is to go and to seek out the Word. Um, where the Word is preached, uh, word, the Word which is God-breathed, as, uh, as we saw in Second Timothy, uh, there God's power is at work. There the Holy Spirit is um, condemning through the law people over their sin, showing them their sin, showing them their need for a Savior, uh, and then uh, comforting and consoling and, and, and uh, forgiving sins of all people through the gospel. Mm-hmm. When we see those things at work, there we know that the Holy Spirit is. Yeah. Where we don't see those things, even if the church is wildly successful and uh, we have a, a wonderful feeling walking in or out the doors, um, that's just no indicator uh, of the uh, of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, so what we can anticipate based upon the fact that God's Word reveals this is if the place we're to look where the Holy Spirit is at work is basically listening with our ears to hear if God's Word is being proclaimed, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, where you know unrepentant sinners are having their sins bound and held to them, where repentant sinners who've been destroyed by God's law are coming to hear and be comforted with the promise of the forgiveness of their sins won by Christ on the cross. You, you, you mean to say that's where God the Holy Spirit is working mightily? That's right. <clears throat> that's right. What if there's no rock band? <laughs> well, um, God never promised to be in the rock band. What, what, about, what about PowerPoint and, and, and a big light show and stuff like that? Once again... Uh, if the word is not there, um, whether you have a PowerPoint or a rock band or anything else, um, then uh, you just have a great show. If the word is not there, you might have a great show, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Okay. It might be exciting, but uh, but this is not where God has directed us to look. Okay. Well, it sounds kind of humble and ordinary and not very exciting. And it might make me feel bad about myself. I mean, I might feel condemned by God. I mean, are you really truly saying that God the Holy Spirit may cause me to feel badly about myself? Well, absolutely. But we have to understand something. Um, If we don't understand and know what we're saved from, how can we possibly hear the message about a Savior? Yeah. If we don't know... uh, the depth of our sin and our need um, and and uh, then how can we receive and how can the message of a savior from from sin a savior who saves one even such as me how can that how can we receive that kind of a message with with joy how can we receive that kind of a message uh, with uh, with comfort if if we don't have our sins condemned, the gospel becomes mere platitudes. Mm-hmm. It just becomes a nice, a nice thing to hear. But when I understand how sinful I am, and then hear of a Savior who gives me free forgiveness 
by virtue of his death and resurrection, then I know and understand and 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 really do experience the power of God's word, the power of the gospel. Mm-hmm. But it had, but the law has to come first. Yeah, it does. It does. So, so God, the Holy Spirit, isn't that what Jesus promised? He said he would send the Holy Spirit and he would convict the world of sin and unbelief. Right. <laughs> right. <clears throat> now, you're, you're bringing up a very, very important point, though. Um, it's, it is very hard uh, to build up a large following, uh, a, a powerful, successful church preaching that kind of message. If it's your goal um, to build an empire um, of success in the world's eyes, you could never uh, preach that kind of message. But if your goal is to see people in heaven, then you'll recognize that that's the only message that's going to get them there. So what would happen if Joel Osteen decided to preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and really let loose with people, uh, with God's law, and drove them to their knees and destroyed their self-righteousness and then preached a crucified and risen Savior? What would happen at the Compact Center if he started doing that? Well, first of all, I'm down the street from there, so you'd see me show up. (laughs) (laughs) And I would would embrace Joel with a, a huge hug and say, thanks be to God, welcome, brother. Um, it, would be a, it would be a wonderful day if that happened. Mm-hmm. And, and many, many people would probably for the first time in their lives hear the good news of their Savior, Jesus Christ, um, and, it, and it would be a wonderful thing. But we have to recognize Joel's uh, church would shrink yeah, because there would be many there who... Would would not want to hear that kind of message. They're uh, they're there to be affirmed, built up, um, and uh, well, and really to hear what their itching ears want to hear. Yeah. Um, okay. Now it's my understanding. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears again here. I uh, I'm I'm not really good on the segues, but it's my understanding you spent some time in the charismatic movement. Yeah, I did. <clears throat> okay. Um, my family moved around quite a bit. Um, and uh, and yeah, we ended up well, probably around in the in the uh, eighth grade through most of my high school years. Uh, I spent in a in a charismatic church. Yeah. Okay. Now, in my experience in the charismatic movement, I spent some time in the New Apostolic Reformation. If you can, uh, you know, we were calling it the latter rain back when I you know when I was involved mm-hmm. in it. You know, people slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, barking like dogs, and you know, doing victory laps around the, you know, the, the sanctuary, all that kind of stuff. Right, right. And we had a prophetess and everything. Um, what I noticed is, is that in those churches, um, the the congregation is stratified into different tiers, and at the top tier, you have your super apostles, who are the ones running the congregation. Right below them are the people who have these sign gifts, you know, speaking in tongues or what, you know, receiving prophetic words from God. God stop, talks directly to them. And then you have Christians who are probably saved, yeah, because they believe that Jesus died for them, but they just haven't done what is necessary to, uh, to you know, to, ex- you know, to er- basically earn 
the right to have these other gifts of the Spirit that are so important. And what I notice is it's, it's, it reminded me of the, uh, it, it, the, the, the metaphor I use. It reminds me of Dr. Seuss's book about the star-bellied sneeches. You know, because uh, the, you know the, they were the best sneeches on the beaches because they had stars on theirs, whereas the other sneeches didn't have any stars. And and, uh, and what I notice is is that when you start dabbling with this view uh, that God wants to speak directly to you without His Word, and then you start, what ends up happening is is you create a formula for this spiritual pride where these people who are who are claiming to have these other gifts are looking down their noses at those other carnal Christians who just don't have those gifts. Can you talk about spiritual pride when it comes to these types of things? Well, yes. The kind of pride that that goes behind this uh, this uh, spirit these spiritual practices <clears throat> excuse me translates itself uh, also into the life of the church um, if we uh if we buy into the idea that the way uh for us to please God is to ascend the monk's ladder or any other kind of of spiritual ladder that we might want to construct, whether that's to have uh supposed special gifts of the spirit speaking in tongues, slain in the spirit, and those kinds of things or anything else um the question is, well, what's going to happen to us when we think that we have arrived at that, uh, at that goal? When we have progressed to the point that we have now achieved what we've been striving for? Well, it's a recipe for spiritual pride and to look down on those who have not uh, reached the level that we have attained and so, yes, in most churches who have uh, substituted the word and sacraments for uh, these these spiritual disciplines or special spiritual gifts, we have a a sort of two-tiered Christianity, uh, where you have those who are the super spiritual ones, and those who are well, let's just put it this way: they're they're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And. And, you know, from my own experience in this, uh, in my own uh, experience with the charismatic uh, church, uh, I was one of the ones who hadn't quite made it <laughs> for a while. Um, I was praying and praying and praying for the gifts of tongues, mm-hmm. uh, going to classes to learn how to speak in tongues even, and uh, and trying to, to get this gift um, and feeling terribly guilty that perhaps it was something that I had done, some unconfessed sin or some aspect of my life that I hadn't given over to God. That was why I was not able to speak in tongues. Um, and that was uh, brought on quite a bit of despair. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and it was a pretty, a pretty dark time in my life and dark time uh, I think for for my faith as well. Talk about that for a second. I mean, because I've been through a similar despair. Um, and you know, what was I mean? I mean, what does that do to your idea about God? I mean, I mean, what what kind of God is that that's sitting there up in heaven? You know, wanting to quote give you the gift of tongues, 
but you're not worthy of the gift. I mean, what kind of God does is does this create? Well, I think uh, eventually um, I was beginning to turn from sort of despair to anger mm-hmm. um, and frustration. Um, I, I think, I, and 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 I think that's the that's the question. Um, you know, we see all over the scriptures that God is a, is a loving and gracious God who who gives you know his gifts freely to his children and and then you then you uh then you ask the question well why hasn't why hasn't he given it to me <laughs> right um and uh and so you go back and forth between uh boy i must be there must be something wrong with me to you know how can god god how can you be so unrealistic in your expectations i don't how can i ever be worthy to receive this gift you know even the language how can i be worthy to receive this gift that should right. that should be the key i mean sit there and go right. oh wait a second <laughs> you know but right. you know i've been down this road and it is pain and frustration like you wouldn't believe i mean when i was done with all of that atheism was looking really good right well and, <clears throat> you know i've I've even heard of stories. Uh, a friend of mine, I, I, wor- I used to work in one of the top grossing Christian stores in the nation. And a friend of mine who I worked with, uh, his wife was involved in, in one of these churches. And you know, he told me one day when we were when we were sitting there in the in the break room, he said, um, "I haven't told anyone this, but my wife tried to commit suicide three times." Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, because. Because she come off the high from the from the church service and hit the lows, you know, yeah. so low um, in during the week, so such despair that she had had not attained unto what she was seeking. Right. You know, I, I worked at Focus on the Family. Um, you know, when my wife and I came out of the uh, this latter rain movement, we were in Seattle and we moved back down to Southern California and I was working at Focus on the Family. And I was working in the listener services department, which at Focus on the Family was, you know, at the time, that was the largest department there. I mean, we handled all of the correspondence and the mail and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it really had to do with everything that had to do with everyday contact with uh, people who were supporting the ministry. And there was a gal in our department uh, showed up to work, uh, you know, uh, one morning she wasn't there. Um, you know, the, the, our supervisor was giving her, you know, was calling her home, no answer later that, you know, later that day, uh, we got word that she had, uh, you know, gone into her garage and, uh, shut the garage door, turned the car on and, and committed suicide. Right. And what was released about the details from her suicide note. I mean, literally I could have written that. I mean, it it was this utter despair about um, how unworthy she was before God, and ha- you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, man, I know this. I know this. And so, um, I, I think that's the dark side of all of this: is that because these practices, these concepts, are not the, the way they're being handled in in evangelicalism and in Catholicism are not taught in Scripture. What's being promised isn't attainable, and the the honest person who says, 
it ain't happening for me, feels utterly rejected by God. And and, and that rather than having the promise of hearing God's voice, they're on the back side of it, and they feel like they're experiencing in a very powerful and real way God's wrath and disappointment with them. Right. Well, you know, I, I went through that myself. Um... You know, we'd have these uh, we'd have these prayer services when they would when they would call us up uh, when you know you'd come up and, and people would pray for you they'd lay their hands on you and pray for you and and uh, you know these guys would not stop praying until you uh, fell over slain in the spirit you know right yeah. <laughs> and I'm a pretty big guy you know it took like four elders to catch me but um, <laughs> <laughs> we need but these guys would pray and 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 I remember the first few times I did it you know I just wasn't feeling it. You know, yeah. and uh, but they kept praying and praying, and then you know, finally I just was all right. I'm just gonna have to fake it, you know. So I'd fall over and and pretend that uh, that I had been slain in the spirit, you know. And then the guilt would hit. Yeah. You know? um, these uh, these other people who are laying on the floor with you, they're having a real experience. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You you don't you you know you're you're. Uh, you're not really a spiritual. You're not really a true Christian, you know. Right. And uh, you're just you're just a phony. And uh, and that guilt, that guilt that was there, um, you know, I believe eventually got to be so bad um, that it, you know psychologically it it, uh, it it really affected me to where you know I, I believed that I needed to have these experiences to know that I was saved, and so psychologically I convinced myself that eventually that they were real. Wow. Um, and, and I think that that's how it works for so many people. There's that they feel, they, they believe, they have been taught, they have been, and they believe <clears throat> that if I don't manifest these things, I'm not really a true Christian. And so uh, uh, they either get so worked up about it uh, or, they, or they, uh, for either with trying and not succeeding or with, with, with pretending that they uh, that they eventually convince themselves that these things are real, right? And um, because you, what greater psychological pressure could there be on someone, right, than to have your salvation tied up in all of this, right? Yeah, somehow, and your salvation depended upon manifesting these these uh, gifts of the spirit. Yep, um, yep, yep. You can convince yourself of anything if you believe that your eternal destiny rests upon it. Or that somehow, yeah, I mean, you, you're tired of being in the Christian ghetto and you want to move uptown, you know? Right. You know, right. at least that's the way, you know, these are metaphors that, you know, in my experience, and it sounds like in yours too, I mean, we, we've we been down this road. Now, right. I, I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit to, for me, coming into Lutheranism was like um, visiting people who lived on the moon. Um, you know, I <laughs> completely different way of thinking, but I got to tell you the one thing that, um, I really, really, uh, think is critically important in, in good confessional Lutheran churches is it's so grounded and earthy and, um, I, I apologize for using the phrase, but I'm, I'm trying to get at something here. Incarnational, not in the sense that the, the seeker driven or the postmoderns are talking about, but what I mean is, is that, it was strange for me to go to church and have nothing occur that was supposedly Pentecostal, charismatic, spiritual. And yet at the same time, it was even more spiritual because it was so grounded in the things of this earth. 
And I remember early on somebody saying, yeah, well, you're taking communion at the Lutheran Church. I'm like, yeah, it's a great thing. And it's weird because the biblical text says, take, eat, this is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. I go, I think the forgiveness of sins tastes like cheap wine and a little wafer. You know, you say something like that and people look at you like, what is wrong with you? But, but, but here's the comforting aspect of it. It's everything is outside of me. And, and it's, it, and everything in our confessional services is geared where God's the prime mover. God's the one giving the gifts. God's there in, in a very real way to serve me. And so I'm trucking in all of my sin and muck from the previous week. And right off the bat, I get hosed off with the forgiveness of sins. And then I receive God's word and the good news of the forgiveness of sins. And if that wasn't enough, I'm kneeling at an altar and I'm taking, you know, a a swig of wine out of a chalice and receiving a small piece of bread. And it's, everything is grounded and it's outside of me. And I've never once had the feeling of superiority over anybody in the congregation because when we all come up to the communion rail, each and every one of us, whether we're rich or poor, black or white, uh, whether we're young or old, we're all kneeling there to receive these gifts from God. And it's very tangible. It tastes and feels a particular way. And it has all these promises associated with it. And I'm no longer chasing my tail. Right, right. Yeah, for me it was it was it was a little different. You know, I I, I grew up in a Lutheran and never really officially left the Lutheran Church. The the charismatic experience that I had was was in a in a Lutheran Church that had sort of uh, departed in many ways from its Lutheran roots. Um, so for me. I think my my problem growing up was that we, we you know we were part of this church but we never understood why we never understood why why the liturgy was this way why did we why did why do we do the sacraments this way why why uh you know why does the pastor wear that big funky white dress you know <laughs> right exactly um and 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 so without a, a rationale or reason and an understanding of our of our teaching and our practice this more exciting uh, sort of charismatic version um, seemed appealing. But when I finally uh, understood and finally um, finally understood the gospel, um, it was like coming home. All of a sudden, these things took on a whole new meaning and significance in life and beauty that uh, I had never seen before because I didn't understand <laughs> right. why why they were the way they were. But upon uh, uh, understanding the gospel and, and beginning to learn uh, why we do what we do, why well, I wouldn't have it anyway, anyway, anyway else. Right. Yeah. It's. It, I mean, you know, for twenty three something, well, twenty three, twenty four years now. You know, it's my soul has been at rest, just resting right. in receiving from God and not chasing. And it's in that receiving that, you know, that God has used the, those means of his word and sacraments to curb sin and to help me to wrestle against it. And, and always it's, 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 it, even say that it's done out of an, you know, an attitude of gratitude is almost missing the point. 
it, it, it gets to the point where it's like a tree that grows and how can it not produce good fruit because that's what trees do. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, right. it's it's a com- it's a completely different way of, of doing things, and I think that's exactly what the scriptures teach. All right, we're gonna pause right there, pay some bills, take a break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer! Shut up! i sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? 
Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture. Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention, and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like His. This is rubbish. A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if you want to be 100% certain that you're hearing the voice of God, open up your Bible and read it out loud. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you just scroll down, look in the middle of the page, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you do that by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, here is the balance of my discussion earlier today with the Reverend Jeffrey Ware 
on the practice of Lectio Divina, and where is it that we go to hear God's voice? Does God promise to speak to us directly, or does he promise that he speaks to us in his word? Here we go. Now, I want to come back to Lectio Divina for a minute. And yeah. you, you had talked about the use of, you know, how they're using the biblical text. I want to walk through the different uh, steps in it. And you have this laid out in your paper, which we're going to be making available for people to download. And uh, Lectio Divina is divided up into four parts. Lectio, Meditatio, Oratio, and Contemplation. Or, and and so th- there's there's a particular thing they're trying to achieve, and you kind of bring this out, is that their use of the text isn't for the means of really understanding what God has revealed in the text, but it's in a sense they're using the text in order to open up a two-way communication between them and God. Right. Explain that. You know, help me understand. You know, what is this use of the text? Because yeah, they've got a Bible, but it it it, it almost doesn't matter what the text says. Right. Right, and, and, and in fact, they enc- they encourage you uh, during this process to sort of assign your own meaning to particular texts, um, uh, to to allegorize and uh, and 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 sort of fit the text into what you want it to say. Uh, so you begin with you begin with lectio, and lectio is is reading and studying the text. Uh, of course, they they add in there that it's it's. It's not just reading and studying, but you've got to have the right attitude. You've got to have a, a, a passive, silent receptivity. You need to approach the text uh, uh, with submission, an attitude of submission to God. <clears throat> and so, uh, and so, that's the first movement of lectio divina to to uh, to use the intellect to understand the text and uh, and uh, and read the text, and then. You go into to meditatio, where here you contextualize the text to yourself um, by discovering you know, Christ and the church within and behind the text, um, moving, and this is really the sort of the first step in moving beyond the words to uh, to a deeper meaning. Behind the text, right, right. Uh, I mean, the, is the, does that mean that the text, when you look at it from behind, is backwards? I mean. It's, <laughs> What does this phrase even mean? Well, uh, and this is this is the challenge when you get into this uh, this this uh, monastic mysticism is I don't think they understand what they mean half the time. Um, it's uh, the 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 by very definition the mystical experience is beyond definition. And so, uh, and so, uh, when you when you when we get to the you know the contemplatio aspect, um, you find the the authors struggling to put into words the kinds of experiences they're having as they have a direct encounter with God. Um, wow! So, so when you ask a question like, "What does this mean?" <laughs> um, well, it kind of means whatever you want it to mean, and it's really uh, subjective and individual. Uh, but isn't that how the normal evangelical small group Bible study reads the text when they ask the question, what does this passage or verse mean to you? Is that right. not 
the second stage of Lectio Divina right there, Meditatio, allegorize the text to your context, right. to your life? Right, that's right. Yeah, what does this mean to you? It's not, it's not what is God saying, um, but what does this mean to you? Wow. And, uh, and which means that uh, every individual sort of has the right to assign whatever meaning that they want to the text. And this is the first uh, step in the departure from God's Word that is, uh, that is inherent in Lectio Divina. Okay, the next step is Oratio. Uh, explain right. that one. Well, Oratio is responding to uh, the previous step uh, of Meditatio. So, so the response is, a, is in prayer and in a changed life. Um, and, you know, in the moment of the devotion, uh, it, it's it's prayer, a, a, a contemplative kind of prayer that uh, usually involves uh, times for silence, uh, where the uh, where the prayer is is listening for God's voice. Or um, so 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 here, kind of as you said before, the the two way communication, mm-hmm. uh, the meditatio opens the door now. Uh, to the oratio, which is the the establishment of the two-way communication between the person and God um, in prayer. Hmm. So, so this moves from an allegorical departure from the actual meaning of the text to now the expectation of direct two-way communication between you and God, almost like a, a listening prayer. Right. O- oratio is the is the springboard to the next step um, of, of contemplatio, contemplation. Okay, explain. Well, in, in, uh, in contemplatio, uh, dur- this, this happens during the prayer and the silence of oratio, uh, God at some point is going to break through and, and speak to you, uh, sometimes in words, sometimes in feelings of joy or ecstasy. And so this, this, uh, this contemplatio described many different ways, but really boils down to this idea of a change of consciousness, where at a certain point we're going to lose awareness of the physical world, we're going to become uh, filled with the fullness of God, feelings of joy and ecstasy, um, and uh, and we may uh, also uh, receive some kind of a special message or voice from God or God speaking to our hearts or it's all described in, in, in many different ways this kind of experience of contemplatio but the goal but the point is here is that we are sort of transcending this uh, this earthly realm with a, into a direct encounter experience. Um, with God, and the Bible nowhere promises this. Don't see it. <laughs> okay, um, so it, nowhere we're in... not. We're certainly not, you know, commanded to to seek this out. Okay, you know? uh, or 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 that this is some kind of a goal uh, for our study of Scripture. Okay, so all right, so we so we've got so. It the the text 
for lack of a better way of putting it, it sounds like the way they're using the text, it has it doesn't matter what it is that God the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors to write in nouns and verbs and pronouns and adjectives and direct objects and indirect <laughs> objects to convey a particular message. Who cares right. what that is? You can now transcend that and and just plug yourself directly into God's heavenly glory outlet? Right. Uh that's exactly um what they're what they're suggesting. Okay. Um yeah, um this is uh problematic at best. So I mean what is the purpose of the text then? Is it just to summon the Holy Spirit? Well the the I don't think that they would ever say that the that the meaning of the text is unimportant or in value or not valuable for the Christian. Okay. Um, I think most most would would say there's there's great value in 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 that first step of of reading and understanding the text. Okay. But the point is is that uh, for these folks is that this is this is really sort of the bare bones minimum that God has so much more for you. That you can experience and know um, if you if you eventually move beyond just a bare understanding of the text to something greater, uh, a personal, one-on-one message revelation experience of the divine. And those were the important words there. So much more than the Bible, right? Okay. Now I'm going to play for you um, an audio clip of Beth Moore. The audio quality is not so good. But uh, last week, Beth Moore, John Piper, Francis Chan, Louis Giglio, and, and others were, were the headliners at a college conference held at the Georgia Dome entitled Passion 2012. And there, you know, on the internet, there's been some buzz and controversy regarding a particular portion of this event where uh, the, these evangelical leaders were reading from uh, the book of Ephesians, but then after they would stop reading, they were basically saying, now stop and let's listen for the voice of God, Lord, speak to us. So the expectation was that God was going to speak to them, not when, he was, when they were reading the biblical text, but God was going to speak to them in the silence afterwards, I'd like to get your uh, your feedback on this. It's not very long, but here is uh, Beth Moore. Only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Without any comment, please. Let's pause and be still and ask Jesus to speak his word to us. Weird sentence. I, I don't know if you heard it very well, but she was reading from Ephesians. She says, without any comment, let's ask the Lord to speak his word to us. But she was just reading it. Right. Uh, what's yeah, wrong with this? Say, uh, Jesus just spoke. Right. <laughs> now we're twiddling our thumbs. <laughs> so apparently, so they've they've invented a practice where they've somehow turned the moment of silence into a uh, into a mystical sacrament. Right. That's it's it's 
it's uh, it's odd. That's odd to me. Yeah. Uh, it, what? what I, I guess the question I would have for Beth Moore is, um, what was she just doing? Right. Um, if 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 Jesus is going to speak to us now in the silence, what was he doing while you were reading the scriptures? Right. And what was the point of reading the text at all? I mean, if the important thing was sure. that God was going to somehow impress something directly into my heart um, after the reading of the text. Yeah, it just it doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Which kind of leads to the question. Martin Luther, um, before his big evangelical breakthrough um, you know, from the book of Romans uh, chapter 3, um, spent some time as an Augustinian monk. Did he did he uh, come into uh, contact with and practice lectio divina as a monk? Well, I don't know if we can uh, know for sure if he practiced lectio divina proper, but he was certainly familiar with this kind of mystical contemplative prayer practice. Did he embrace it or repudiate it? Well, I think in uh, uh, perhaps as a monk he embraced it, but uh, certainly later on in his life, uh, this was this was something that he uh, he understood to be uh, a contrary to God's word. Um, you see, Luther realized something pretty important. He 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 came to realize that the power was in the word of God. Um, I think the the monks uh, and 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 uh, many of the, the the theologians of that time uh, saw language sort of as a system of signs that point to reality. That the words are are the signs, but not the reality itself. Mm-hmm. And 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 we know that that's kind of experientially true for us. But that doesn't translate to God's word, because God's word is powerful in a way that our words are not. You know, you think back to the creation, you know, God creates the world, let there be light, and mm-hmm. there's light. When God speaks, uh, that word um, is the reality itself. Right. Um, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is the word, we know, from John 1, and uh, and the word does what it says and, and says what it does. So, so Martin Luther understood that when, you, when you're dealing with God's word, this is not the same kind of word... Uh, or, or the same kind of uh, power that's behind the words that you and I might say, you know, having a congregate conversation. God's word is is powerful. God's word creates the reality. It affects the reality. It, well, doesn't Scripture and, say that it, God's word is living and active? Right. Right. Yeah. So, so when he understood that, he realized that there is no going beyond the Word of God. In fact, he realized that that's impossible um, because the Word is the pinnacle. It is the height. <laughs> it, it, is, it is all that there is. Um, if we, if we, can't, we can't go beyond the Word of God. And so um, he rejected the uh, medieval uh, mystical prayer practices that he had learned as a monk and instead um, substituted it with a, a, uh, a way of learning and studying the Scriptures that always directed people back to the Word. Okay. So Luther um, 
wasn't into getting behind the biblical text. That's right. Okay. For Luther, the, knowing and hearing the word itself is the goal. Okay. Uh, never, never, we're never trying to get behind the word because the word is the reality. The word is effective. So Luther would never say there's so much more than the Bible that God wants to reveal to you. That's right. So we have everything we need in the scriptures. So the scriptures are are totally sufficient for the Christian. That's right. Everything that God wants to communicate to us is found in the written word of God. Absolutely. Everything we need to know for life and salvation is there in God's word. That was uh, that was Luther's conviction. And so I don't need to climb a ladder into heaven. No. Uh, and that's because the Word itself is the power. Uh, there is, uh, it's not just bare uh, marks on a page. Uh, it's not just ink and paper. Um, or in the case of a pastor proclaiming the Word, uh, uh, a sinful human being standing there. The Word is powerful. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, it is... Uh, the only power that we need. So in order to in order to understand the voice of God, I need to know how to read and pay attention to context. Absolutely. In order to un- know whether or not I'm hearing the voice of God, I you know if I really want to go deeper, then I might want to learn Greek or Hebrew. Sure. Okay. That that can only help. <laughs> okay. Now I I, I want to contrast what you're saying to a popular evangelical teacher her name is priscilla schreier and this this is a small youtube video it's it's just a few minutes long entitled how do i know if i've heard god correctly and i want to contrast what it is that you are saying about what luther discovered and what he really truly believed and what confessional lutheranism teaches regarding knowing and hearing god's voice so to speak to what priscilla is saying here here listen in there are many ways that you can know that you have heard God correctly. But first of all, let me just say that one of the great things that I got to do when preparing for this book, Discerning the Voice of God, was to interview many great men and women of the faith who we all admire. Everybody from Henry Blackaby to Tony Evans, K. Arthur, Beth Moore. I asked them, how do you know when you've heard the Lord's voice? They gave me what many wonderful answers that I was able to record in Discerning the Voice of God. But one of the things I noticed is that they all kind of said something that was similar. There was always one common denominator, one thread that ran through every one of their answers to me. And it went something like this. Priscilla, the only way that I ever know that I got the Lord's voice 100% correct was after the fact. When I look back and saw that what I thought God was saying was indeed what happened. Now, if those great men and women of God that we all admire said that they never get it 100% correct, man, when I heard that, it just lifted a burden off of my shoulders. It meant that I won't get it 100% correct and that God graciously uses our errors to be our best teachers in the future as to how to know when discern, to, when to, how to discern God's voice. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, I think that, um, that that kind of approach is just full of uncertainty. Um, 
I, mean, I, I actually, I actually really like the uh, the clip because uh, she's admitting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's so... she's admitting it. <clears throat> now the question though is, is um, if you get it wrong, uh, and then you go out on the the radio or TV or in your congregation, if you're a pastor uh, or with a brother or sister in Christ, and you start to proclaim this, um, and you get and, you, and you've got it wrong. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Who could be harmed uh, by this? Uh, Many people could be harmed by this. Yeah, depending on the size of the uh, you know the 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 voice imprint of your ministry. Let's say you have right. millions listening to you. Right. You know. Right. Um. So, That's not uh, responsible preaching and teaching. Now, uh, to I'm, go off the gut feeling and hope that it was the word of the Lord. And she's admitted that it's well, it's not always a hundred percent. Well, what right. is it then? Is it twenty five, thirty, forty, fifty percent? Do I flip a coin to know whether or right. not it's the voice of God? And, and yet, I can say with one hundred percent certainty, every single time I have heard. Uh, thus saith the Lord in my small Lutheran congregations that I've been a part of you know, for the past couple of decades, I can say with certainty I've always 100% of the time heard the voice of God. Why? Because the, pastor, the pastors that I've had, they only preach the biblical text. Right. I can know with certainty 100% of the time that what's recorded for me in Scripture is God's word. That's right, and isn't that so much better than uh, than just hoping and wishing that you got it right? <laughs> and, and and I think they would people like that would argue that uh, we're putting the Holy Spirit in a box. I would basically saying they're taking Christianity and turning it into complete uncertainty. Right. You know how do I know? Right. I think I think the 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 biblical approach to this is given for our comfort and our assurance. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're directed to the Word uh, because that is something sure and solid and consistent. You know, if we, if you know, if imagine for a second, if God were if the only way that God spoke to us was, you know, in a voice from the heavens. Uh, you know, <laughs> you wake up from the the dream that you had, uh, and and uh, you know, the first thing that would happen was, well, you know. Did I have too much to drink last night, or you know, uh, right? You know, something didn't agree with me. <laughs> yeah, I I so. suffer from hypoglycemia, and there's a good chance right. I'll I'll be diabetic within ten years. And so I mean, am I, you know, how am do I going I, crazy? Do I need meds? Right? You know? Do I need insulin? Uh, do I need an orange? I mean, you know, how do I know? And and and, and God knows that if He worked in that way, that would be Satan's first tactic. Mm-hmm. Would be to uh, to call into question and to doubt those times when God was really speaking to us. So instead of going that route, He gives us the sure Word in written form, uh, in a book that we can hold in our hands and, and uh, read with our eyes, or if you've got your Bible on CD here in the car on your mm-hmm. way to work. And uh, and when you have that, you know you're hearing the voice voice of God. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I, I want just so that people don't think that we're just shooting from the hip and you know, and kind of opining using our own opinions. I would make the case from Second Peter chapter one that what we're make the point that we're making here is the exact point that the apostle Peter makes in Second Peter chapter one. I'm going to start at verse sixteen. I read from the ESV. 
And I want to, you know, I, 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 let's interact with this text a little bit. The, this is the Apostle Peter who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Talk about having an experience. Okay, one could argue that he was shaking in his boots when this was going on. But um, yeah, so he, this is a guy who... Yeah, he didn't have to ascend any higher than whatever it was at Mount Tabor that they were at for the Mount of Transfiguration. Didn't have to go much higher than that little earth pimple, and uh, and God descended, and and the majesty of God was there. But watch what he says here in this passage: Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp. So given the choice between hearing the voice of God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration or the written word of God, Peter says the written word of God is more sure than that. I love that. I love that text. Um, Yeah, can you imagine being Peter (laughs) standing on that Mount of Transfiguration? What a powerful experience that must have been. Yeah. But he says uh, that, that we're more blessed um, to have that sure word. Right. And that, and that what God, that the communication being rendered unto us by God in the sure word is more powerful than what, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. I, I can't come up with any other conclusion than that. I mean, right. if if Peter had his druthers, he would go with the written word of God every single time because that's more sure, more certain than even the voice that he heard. Right. I mean, right. if that if I, I I can't think of a text that that smashes these ideas than the presuppositions that go with this stuff uh, than this passage. Yeah, let me. I want to read a little, just a little bit more. And we have something more sure: the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There again, tying the work of the Holy Spirit to the written word of God and saying that's more sure than the very voice of God the Father, which he experienced in the majestic glory cloud there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you, you look at that as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's the same, uh, the same uh, word in, uh, used in Acts 27 when the, when the ship is being carried along or driven along by the wind right um here we have uh these these uh men um who are driven along by the holy spirit this is a a real uh wonderful testimony to the the inspiration of holy scripture yeah 
And that's the sure and certain word. Now, I want to take a look at a couple of like the two main verses that people rip out of context to say that God wants to talk to us. And the first is from Psalm chapter 46, be still and know that I am God. Okay. Now, when I was in the New Apostolic Reformation, I mean, this was a go-to verse, man. I mean, be still and know that I am God. The way it was used was basically, sit in silence, God wants to talk to you. Shut up, God has something he wants to say to you. Right. Um, And I think that's how a lot of people use this verse. Now, uh, you know, if you have it in front of you, um, see if see if my uh, exegesis of this passage is correct. I'll start at verse 8 so we can get a little bit of context. God is speaking, Come, behold the works of the Lord and how he has brought desolations to the earth. There's a little bit of judgment talk going on here. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Okay. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. If I were to paraphrase that, it's God speaking to the nations and basically telling him to shut up. He's God. Right. Um, how's, how's my exegesis? Well, I think that's right. Um, you know, the problem with just quoting the first part of verse 10 is that it ignores the entire context of the passage. Right. And so here we, and so here what we're having is not be still and listen to the voice of God in your heart. There's nothing even hinted like that in the text. Nothing. And instead, just as you said, um, you know, all these, uh, all these. Uh, well, of course, the the the, um, the, the whole text uh, uh, speaks of of these uh, these nations <laughs> mm-hmm. who uh, who are raging and and, and uh, the the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Mm-hmm. Um, they stand against God, and God is saying, "Shut up! <laughs> yeah, be still. I am God. I will." prevail right and that's a great comfort to us by the way yes because uh we can also um be in terror and fear when we see these things happening in the world and so you could even say too there might be an aspect of for us to be still (laughs) right and know that he is god to know that he is in control to know that he will win and he will accomplish his purpose, no matter how bad things seem to us right now. Right. And as I read this psalm, I can't help but also see in this, you know, I'm not trying to allegorize here, but um, this is really showing, you know, to use a Calvinistic phrase, the sovereignty of God. And a parallel passage uh, that I would point people to in kind of understanding the concept is the story where Jesus is asleep on a you know on a on a cushion in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm and the storm is raging and right. he says to the storm shut up okay right. you know so here right. in this in the psalm the nations are raging they're foaming up and tempestuous against God and God's just saying be still right. silence i'm god i will prevail I, I think that would be a good p- 
parallel passage to help us unpack what God is saying here. But nowhere in this text does it say, go into silence and solitude and sit there and God's going to speak into your heart. And yet that's how this... This, those words are ripped out of context, how they're used constantly by the people who are promoting these mystical practices. Right. Okay. Well, let's take a look at one more, and then I'll, I'll be nice to you and let you go. <laughs> okay, First Kings chapter 19. Um, uh, over and again, you, you hear about the still, small voice of the Lord. Supposedly... You know, it's a, it, it comes out of this passage and, and, you know, from the King James translation, but I'm not going to use the King James. And the implication is, is that the way this verse is always used, uh, you know, the still small voice of the Lord, is that somehow this is normative, uh, this story is normative, and that God wants to, intends to, and, and will speak to us using a still small voice. So we need to be still, know that he's God, be silent. And at the oratio stage of whatever this practice is, silently learn how to hear God's voice. But the question I have is, is this text saying this at all? Okay, let me read it in context. First Kings chapter 19, starting at verse 9. Elijah, it says, Then uh, there he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Notice the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, Well, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with uh, the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he's at, at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Uh, you know, He's just fled after the uh, prophets of Baal incident on uh, Mount Carmel. And he said, Go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. The Lord... And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so the idea there is, is that because, you know, God was speaking in a low whisper, that that means that God wants to speak to you and me in a low whisper. What's wrong with that idea? Well, it's, the problem here is that uh, <clears throat> it's sort of taking the, uh, the, the text out of context. Here we have a, something that happens to Isaiah, um, I mean, sorry, to Elijah. Yeah, Elijah. And uh, um, here we have something that happens personally to Elijah. It's a historical account of something that happened to him. This is not a, a, a section in Holy Scripture that is teaching us how to seek or hear the voice of the Lord. We have here something that is bound to its historical context. It's Elijah only. Um and so we have no command here from God to uh, to seek this kind of experience. Okay. So um, yeah, but isn't aren't the scriptures really a, a, a roadmap for the things you know for my own life? And so isn't what happened to Elijah what God wants to do in my life too? Come on. That's uh, well. <laughs> 
All right. I'm uh, really important. Then, uh, Trust me. I, 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 I have a sincere heart. I mean, doesn't that mean that right. God wants to talk to me, too? Well, sure. You know, he does want to talk to you, and he does talk to you through the Word. Um, that that has been told to us. Now, um, you know, if you want to, if you if you think that all the things that happened to Elijah also need to happen to you, then you need to go find some uh, priests of Baal and uh, and go up to Mount Carmel and you know build an altar and saturate it with water and call down fire from heaven. You know, um, if everything uh, that happened to all the prophets in the Old Testament should also happen to us. Uh, well, if, if you're going to pick out this one event and say, this is normative for all Christians of all times, and you have to do that with the rest of it. Right. And that's, and that's it's just uh, taking these things out of their historical context. And, oh, right. And, as, I mean, uh, would... As I've heard you say many times, flattening the text. Right, exactly. <laughs> to, to try to find something and some justification for what we want to find what we want to hear. Mm-hmm. Picking, cherry-picking Bible passages. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I expect God to speak to me in a still, small voice, I should also expect that he's going to pick me up next week in a, in a chariot of fire and take me to heaven. Right, right. I mean, the same logic would apply. Right. But uh, I, don't, I don't see a lot of people expecting God to pick them up in a chariot of fire. No. You know, um, so, yeah, okay, we've... We, so this passage isn't teaching us that God wants to speak to us in a still small voice. That's right. Hmm. And yet, Psalm forty-six and First Kings nineteen are the two primary verses that are constantly thrown out by people who believe that God wants to speak to us as proof that God wants to, and yet none of these passages, when they're put back in context, say anything even remotely approaching that. Yeah, unless, unless you think that because, uh, you know, Solomon had 2,000 wives, that you too should have 2,000 wives. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I, I find marriage to one woman to be um, a challenging enough, and I think she would argue uh, that uh, being married to one man is more is as a cross that even she can't bear. So, <laughs> especially me. So okay, um, right. So it's this is just it's it's a it's a misuse of God's word. And ultimately, at the at the end of the day, this is not what God's word is revealing. And so the way they're using these doctrines is are ba- these passages is to create the impression that this is what God wants, but that's not what He's revealed. Right. In other words, this is false teaching. Well, I think I think what we see here is it starts with the false assumption that we have to climb to God, right? Uh, an assumption that our sinful human pride uh, relishes and, and, and loves, um, and so uh, that assumption needs a justification, and so. Uh, folks start looking for passages to support their false assumption. Right. Um, and so this is not, this is not uh, hearing, uh, you know, studying and reading and, and hearing God's Word to see what He has to say. It's searching God's Word for what we want it to say. 
Right. Um, it's really uh, the fruit of this kind of mystical approach to Scripture that we see in Lectio Divina. Okay, something we haven't talked about yet, and I think this is going to be the last topic I want to talk about. Scripture makes it clear that Christ and his church and Christians have a real enemy in in Satan and his demons. And that Satan always is trying to get people to doubt or misunderstand or misapply or deny God's word. That was the attack that Satan used in the garden against Eve. Did God really say? And so in your experience and in mine, it's easy to say that many of the people who are in these, who are doing these practices have deceived themselves or were faking it and began to believe as a result of their faking, to kind of believe the lie, what was going on. Um, what are the chances that uh, there's there's still others who, through these practices that are not prescribed in Scripture, are actually experiencing uh, the demonic? Because Scripture warns us that in the last days that people would be following the doctrines of demons. And so, you know, I, I think it's important that we not over-modernize this and um, come to grips with the fact that there are those who may have actually tapped into a spiritual source, but it's that source is not God the Holy Spirit, but uh, Satan and the other team, if you would. Yeah, it's actually something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I'm uh, currently preparing to make a trip to India, and um, so I've been reading up on, on Hinduism, uh, reading some accounts of some folks who've uh, converted from Hinduism to Christianity. And, uh, and, and Hinduism, uh, it's, it's actually surprising to see the similarities between uh, Hinduism and, uh, and what we're talking about here today with Lectio Divina and other uh, mystical prayer practices. Um, these ideas of, of silence, of clearing your mind, of opening up yourself to the direct experience of the divine are are quite parallel to what we see in in other um, mystical religions, mm-hmm. and uh, those who've come out of of Hinduism have said that they firmly believe that the experiences that they had were of demonic origin. Um, that the uh, that the deities that they met during meditation um, were were demonic. And I and I believe too that uh, when we when we step away from God's word and open our minds uh, to try to experience God in ways that He has not given us to know Him, we are in very real danger of opening up ourselves to demonic influence. Yeah, it's um, it's it's this is serious stuff, um, and. Uh, and I think that people are being seriously deceived. Yep, I completely they're in, they're agree. In real danger. Yeah, and see that I, I think it's important to uh, to keep a sobering note like that as the last one ringing in our ears, because right. ultimately, this is these practices are not a formula for certainty and trust in God, but there is there you're opening yourself up to receive visions 
and ideas and thoughts and temptations that don't have their origin in God, but have their origin in the devil and his plans and his legion of demons. And quite frankly, uh, let's just run the scenario. That that gal Priscilla, the, the, the quote that we just, you know, I played for you, where she admitted that, uh, that these people who claim they're hearing the voice of God openly admit that they don't hear the voice of God 100% of the time. Yet... I would say, um, from my experience in listening to these people, I would say bef- that many of them say, thus saith the Lord, when they're not sure it's the Lord who thus said it. And what if they're only 50% right? The ult- ultimately, what happens as a result of this reckless, non-biblically warranted practice is that people are taught to put their trust in the person supposedly receiving these direct visions from God, and if they're only right 50, 60, 70 percent of the, of the time, that means that the person putting their trust in that person or believing that that person's hearing from God, that is setting them up to ultimately become atheists because that, you know, the people watching are, are keeping score. Well, and I, I think I would go even further and say I don't I don't believe that they're hearing from God any percentage of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, I you know this is my opinion, but I just don't think that God is going to <laughs> uh, grant their their wish yeah. to hear from Him directly if they despise His word. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I, in fact, I can't point to a single instance, not one, in all of my years of adult ministry and apologetics works, uh, work where I've ever, ever once seen somebody say they, they, you know, they're hearing from God, where their, where their doctrine is sound. Every single, right. every single time I, you know, somebody has claimed to be getting direct revelation and vision from God, their, their doctrine that they're preaching from their pulpit is problematic at best. Right, so with the fruit of this, uh, this is, is is apparent as well. Right, right. You know, and, and you were saying before this this uncertainty. You know, uh, I think too. You know, we we know Hebrews eleven. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Mm-hmm. You know, faith. You know, when when faith is assurance, it's it's conviction, it's certainty that yeah. we have a loving God who forgives us and. And uh, and so I think anything that lends toward uncertainty, uh, uh, especially uh, when it comes to God's word, is, has got to be of, of Satan. Yeah, and and that I mean that's Satan's ploy, isn't it? Always to create doubt. Right. You know, I, doubt is the opposite of faith. Well, Satan knows. Satan knows that the power is in the word. Yep. So if he can convince us that. Uh, the word is not enough, uh, and that we need to look elsewhere. Then he has has scored a major victory. Yeah, in his uh, scheme to rob us of faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. That's true. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap this up, um, uh, Pastor Ware. Uh, you you are a pastor at Living Word Lutheran Church in the Woodlands, Texas. You're in Carrie Shook's neck of the woods. 
Yes, sir. And so if anyone wants to send you hate mail, um, they they can get a hold of you by Googling Living Word Lutheran Church, uh, Woodlands, Texas, and they should be able to uh, pull up the church's website and uh, and find a way to contact you if they have questions or concerns or, uh, you know, need prayer or help or, you know, a- any kind of follow-up regarding uh, the topic that we've talked about today. And, of course, if anyone wants to email me, uh, you know, I, I'll give out the contact information here at the end of the, at the, end of the program. But, they, again, the name of your article is uh, that you, the paper that you presented in 07 is a Lutheran perspective on Lectio Divina, and we're going to make that available. We're going to link to it um, uh, from the, the Fighting for the Faith uh, website from the, when this podcast is posted. And I'm also going to take the PDF and make it available uh, in the uh, podcast stream, if you follow us on iTunes and you listen on iTunes, uh, you'll see the link to the uh, actual PDF document itself so that you can read this because uh, you do a really good job in the first half of the uh, of the paper of really citing all the sources of the people who think that uh, Lectio Divina is the bee's knees and then circle back and give us a, a, a biblical way of understanding the scripture and how it is that God truly talks to us. So, um, Pastor Ware, thank you so much for uh, the, the shepherding work that you do at, there at uh, Living Word, and thank you for coming on Fighting for the Faith today. Thank you for having me, and I just want to say I really appreciate uh, what you're doing there on Fighting for the Faith. It's, it's, um, it's tremendous help to pastors like me as well to keep up with what's going on in the, in the, uh, in the wider church and... Uh, God bless you as you continue to do this work of discernment. Thank you. Great interview. I don't think I can add anything else to it, except for just kind of punctuate this point. It is dangerous for any teacher, any teacher, to point you away from the sure and certain word of God to some to some inner speaking that God is supposed to be doing in your heart. It is a very dangerous thing to point you away from the sure and certain word of God found in Scripture, which the Apostle Peter clearly says is more sure and certain even than the voice of God the Father that he heard when Jesus was transfigured before his eyes. Go to the sure and certain word of God. Don't try to get behind the text or beyond the text or fall for the lie that God has more to reveal to you than what's in the text. Over and again, God's word admonishes us to trust, cherish, and listen to God's voice written for us in the pages of Scripture. And every single time you read God's word, you can know you're hearing the Word of God. Why? Not because of some subjective inner feeling that it gives you or a feeling of peace that's supposed to wash over your soul. We can trust the Word of God because Jesus Christ himself said it's the Word of God. And he proved his credentials to make that claim by dying on a cross for your sins and mine and being bodily raised again on the third day for our justification. The, the authority of Scripture is firmly planted on Jesus Christ himself. You can trust Jesus. So you want to hear God speak? Open his word. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. Go to a church where you are pointed and directed to Christ's word in Scripture, not God's word that's supposed to be burbling up from within inside your heart. 
The scripture doesn't teach that that's where to, where we're to find God's word. We're to find God's word in the text of scripture. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.